gonna say, you guys can grab a seat, but you're doing that, so you don't need my coaching on that, right? Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Um, man, I'm so glad that you guys are here this morning. Uh, whether you're in this space or, or whether you're jumping on via live stream and participating in this gathering of, of the church alongside those who are exploring the truth claims of Christianity this morning, alongside those who think they're the church but don't truly know Jesus and, and all of the messiness of, of all of those things coming together in one space this morning. I'm just gonna go ahead and invite us to open the Bible together because I'm super excited about an incredibly strange yet wondrous passage. If you have one, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter four. That's where we'll be this morning, the first 13 verses. If you don't have a Bible, you can just kind of track with what's on the screen behind me. We'll walk through the passage with that visual aid to help out along with any other passages outside of this morning's passage, any sort of quotes from commentaries and so forth. Let me go ahead and pray for us. One of the most important things we do as Christians. Heavenly Father, going back to last week that we could even start a prayer that way is a miracle purchased for us by way of the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ that we could know the wonder of adoption, sons and daughters, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead anointed for ministry, the work that you have for us this very day. Speaking of you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be unleashed in this space in these moments to come and in those spaces represented by those joining in digitally that you would move in power in and through the preached word, one of the many means of grace that we have in spaces like these and, and only in spaces like these. Would you do what you do? God, I, I don't know the depth of my sin, none of us do, but many of us in this space know where to run for grace. And we know how to take others to it. And so I pray that we would see the wonder of your sovereign grace yet again this morning, that you would awaken our hearts with joy, with love, with gratitude, with peace, with awe. Would you do that in the name of Jesus and for the glory of his name, amen. All right, so let me, let me attempt to set the stage a little bit here. Um, if you've been around for this series, you know that uh, Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, the anointing and coronation ceremony of, of heaven's priest king, going back to last week, a moment in which the, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and Jesus is publicly identified as the Father's beloved son, the eternal, divine, beloved son of God on whom the perfect approval of the Father and anointing power of the Spirit rest, as is the case for those of us who are in Christ ourselves. It's in the wake of, of that incredible, never to be repeated moment in redemptive history that Luke tells us in verse one, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. All right, the, the language that, that Luke uses here, it, it doesn't carry the full weight that Matthew's gospel account does. Matthew tells us that, Quote, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil with the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Holy Spirit does that. Second person of the Trinity, purposefully lead, led by the third person of the Trinity to a showdown with the devil of hell. That's the scene that Luke's setting for us. Probably, I would guess, I would venture to say, 
not what readily runs through most of our minds when we think of what it means to walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. If we isolate this episode from everything that, that surrounds it, it certainly leaves us with questions regarding the guiding work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. However, if we take note of the bigger picture, we see that this moment in the wilderness is preparing Jesus for Calvary. When we find ourselves in a battle with the devil in the wilderness, so to speak, we've gotta step back and ask the question, God, what are you doing in all of this? What are you up to? How are you preparing me for what's to come, for what's down the road? I believe you're in full sovereign control. I believe you love me, going back to last week, and that you sing loudly over me. So would you help me to reconcile my circumstances in light of your sovereignty and love? Because my circumstances are not the supreme authority. That's the posture of the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ, as he's led to a place of solitude for a showdown with the prince of darkness. You have two lions colliding here the Lion of Judah going several rounds in the octagon with the devouring lion of hell. Luke goes on to tell us, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Israel, referred to as God's son at several places along the way in the Old Testament, spent 40 years in the wilderness grumbling and complaining, giving in to temptation, just like Adam in the garden sanctuary of Eden going back to the last couple weeks. Here, Luke shows us that Jesus is not only the second Adam, having come to do what the first Adam failed to do, but he's also the new Israel, tested in the wilderness as God's son. And the outcome, as we'll see, is vastly different from those 40 years of, of heart-hardening failure to trust the Lord, then in the fullness of his humanity, we're told that Jesus is hungry after 40 days without food, as would any of us be, right? Having gone right around the longest a human being can possibly go before doing permanent bodily damage. That's where Jesus is when the devil shows up to do his work. And we're told in verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. There, there are at least a, a couple of things that are incredibly strange about this scene. All right, for one, the fast is over, meaning that Jesus is good to eat whenever he wants to eat. It's not like the, the devil is tempting Jesus to break the fast. Secondly, bread is not an abomination to the Lord. Praise be to God for that, many of us would say. Right? In fact, Jesus would go on to declare himself to, to be the bread having come down from heaven and that we can count ourselves blessed to be among those who will someday eat bread in the kingdom of God. So, so what's going on here? What is, what is Satan attempting to do? Well, maybe he's looking to take Jesus off of his mission, simply put, by getting him to assert his own self-sufficiency, to which many of us can, can relate, Right? having heard those same whispers of the enemy ourselves. You don't have to suffer like this. Maybe you just need to start turning some stones to bread, taking matters into your own hands. Or perhaps he's calling Jesus to take a good thing and put his trust in it, which is the very definition of idolatry. Good things like bread, even bread, when you put your hope in them, become God things. Again, a temptation that, that's not so foreign to us, particularly when our seeming provision is, is at stake. A man's gotta eat, a woman's gotta eat, the kids have gotta eat. 
One thing I think we can say with certainty that Satan is seeking to do is to call both God's word and Jesus's identity into question. It's the same thing he's been doing since the very beginning. Genesis 3, God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan shows up. What are the first words out of his mouth? Did God actually say? Similarly, Luke chapter four, this morning's passage, God says to the last Adam, you are my beloved son. You are the son of God. With you, I am well pleased. What does Satan show up on the scene and say? If you are the son of God. In other words, did God really say? Same MO, he's not really changing a lot of his ground game, so to speak. The very same whispers that many of us have heard time and time again. Can you really trust that God is who he says he is? Can you really rely on God's character? Can you really rely on God's promises? Is he really in control? Because it seems as if your life is coming unraveled at the seams. Is his word really to be trusted? Did he really say? And not just God's word, but, but what about your identity? Do you really believe that you're loved by God? That you're accepted by God? Do you really believe? Do you really believe that he, he sings, and not only sings, but sings loudly a song of delight over you? What Jesus faces in the wilderness are the very same things that, that you and I face daily. They're just repackaged in different ways, form-fitted for each of our individual doubts, fears, and battles to believe. And Jesus responded beautifully, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Matthew's gospel account adds, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, saying, yes, God's promises, God's word, they are to be believed. That's Deuteronomy 8.3 that Jesus is quoting there, the first of three times that Jesus fights temptation with the word of God, declaring to the enemy, I'm sustained by the words of my father, not the words of the father of lies. My father is sovereignly in control of all things. He does deeply love me. He is deeply for me, and he is worthy of my trust. So the devil takes a second stab, we're told. Verse five. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil follows his offer of provision, which certainly can be a tempter to us with one of power, another tempter of man. Another of the great temptations that we all face, inviting Jesus essentially to break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Satan establishes a call to worship here. A temptation that, that again, it's not foreign to any of us. We're all worshipers. We all entrust our hearts at times to other lovers. A couple of quotes I've shared in the past as it pertains to this idea of worship and idolatry, Philip Ryken says, the world is full of God's substitutes and God additives, things that take the place of God in daily life. The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries, he says, is not because we don't have any false gods anymore, but because we have so many. 
Or perhaps more famously, John Calvin once said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, constantly cranking them out, one after another after another. The question is not, am I a worshiper? We all are, and all of the time. Question is, who or what is seated on the throne of my heart, my life? You might ask, how do we identify those things that, that vie for our affection, assuming that we believe what Calvin and Riken are saying to be true? How do we identify our own propensities toward idolatry? I'll offer just a few diagnostic questions. These have been offered in the past and they should be offered frequently to the church, not just one time. Questions we should always be asking ourselves. Questions like, what, what keeps me up at night? What is it that wakes me up at two in the morning and causes me to not be able to go back to bed until four in the morning? What do I often daydream about when there's space and margin to think on whatever I wanna think on? Where does my mind go? Where does it drift? What do I get excited about? What, what is it that, that puts wind in my sails? How do I spend my time and money where does, where does my checkbook say my heart is rooted, my calendar? What is it that, that if I could have it would make my life complete, that, that I believe that only true happiness can really be found if I acquire that? What are those things that will devastate me if I'm unable to obtain them, that life may not be worth living, that life will be a great tragedy if I can't acquire where do I turn in times of trouble? What are my coping mechanisms? What are the things I run to when life gets hard? Those are the kind of questions that, that help to excavate those things that are below the surface of our hearts, those things that compete with God for our affections. Again, oftentimes, good things that we end up elevating to a place of supremacy so that good things then become God things in our hearts. And we fight tooth and nail to defend them because in and of themselves, they actually oftentimes are good, making them easy to defend. Dangerous practice, by the way. Bow to me and I'll give you money and stability. Bow to me and I'll give you power and influence. Bow to me and I'll give you status and approval. An invitation to compromise our convictions, perhaps in an expedited fashion, perhaps very slowly over the course of time as we bend our knee to the one who promises to write those soul-destroying checks. But not Jesus, praise be to God. Verse eight goes on to say, and Jesus answered the devil, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6.13, the second of Jesus' scripture references in the face of temptation as Jesus declares, Satan, I'm not bending a knee to you or anyone or anything else. The only one to whom this knee is bending in glad submission is my Father in heaven. Praise be to God, because he's gonna take that perfect record of, of obedience to the cross on our behalf. But Satan's not done. He gives it a third go, Luke tells us in verse nine. And he took Jesus to Jerusalem and, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, there he goes again, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels, God will, concerning you to guard you, 
And on their hands, they will bear you up, these angels, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the devil, the devouring lion of hell is skilled at scripture memory? To which the answer must be yes, as he takes Psalm 91 out of context in an effort to destroy Jesus. That's terrifying. Perhaps the most terrifying thing is that he's had thousands of years to get really good at it. John Piper is once quoted as saying, with respect to this passage, Satan skips right over adultery, fornication, stealing, lying, murder. He doesn't go into the, the back streets of Jerusalem and bring some prostitute out into the wilderness and present her to Jesus. No, those are games for sub-devils, he says, with weak saints. When Satan means business with a strong saint, and Jesus surely is the strongest, he sticks with religion and he uses the Bible as his textbook. Here again with Jesus, did God really say, are you truly the son of God? A manipulation of Psalm 91 at best, which the devil loves to do, and has even trained up pastors and professing Christians to help him to that end. An example I've given before, it probably won't be the last time, how often has Jeremiah 29, 11, been taken out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that verse taken out of context only to lead someone to a place of great despair. Maybe even walk away from the church on, on the basis of that very verse. God wants to prosper me. God has a hope and a future for me. So I'm gonna lay claim to fill in the blank with whatever that thing is. Oftentimes, whatever is in that blank has little to nothing to do with the glory of God. Sometimes it might. Is it true that God has our welfare in mind? Absolutely. Is it true that God wants to give us a hope and a future? Yes, amen to that. But that promise to Israel found in Jeremiah 29, 11 is a promise of the return of God's people from exile after 70 years of, of living in a pagan wasteland having gone by. God says after 70 years of facing the challenges of living in a godless world, then and only then am I gonna bring you out of Babylon. I mean, what if God promises us a hope and a future on the heels of 70 years of wasteland living. <laughs> Are we up for that? Or, or is our faith contingent upon everything going according to our plan? Satan takes the Bible right out of context in an effort to destroy Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus answered him, verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. The third time that Jesus references the book of Deuteronomy in the face of temptation, when was the last time any of us left the house thinking we might need the book of Deuteronomy to fight against the devil and his minion army? <laughs> Jesus declares, Satan, I'm not gonna step outside the bounds of obedience to my father. I'm not gonna sidestep my father's plan of redemption on the way to, to some faster than the father intended form of glory that you're offering. And verse 13 says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, 
he departed from him until an opportune time. This isn't the last time that we see that lurking dragon that we call the devil in this, this truest of redemptive fairy tales. But this is a significant moment in the, in the story that Luke is out to tell. And, and not simply because it, it gives us a blueprint for fighting off the enemy and overcoming temptation, though that's true. Jesus surely opens our eyes to to the necessity of being well-versed in the scriptures, well-versed in the plan of God, the promises of God. And not simply that we might become theological bobbleheads on some fast track to dead orthodoxy with all of our Bible knowledge, but rather that we might aim the truth of God's word, God's plan, God's promises at the enemy, as well as our own hearts in the midst of the dangers of sin and unbelief. I've said this one before too, What terrifies me is not what I don't know about the Bible. It's what I do know that I don't aim at myself and the enemy in moments of temptation. But lest we think that this morning's passage is simply a means of helping us to fight temptation, Christ our exemplar, be like Jesus, though there's some essence of that in this morning's passage, this this passage is not ultimately about trusting God's word It's ultimately about trusting God's son, the second Adam, the new Israel, truly the son of God who succeeded where Israel failed in his own wilderness wandering experience, who succeeded where we all fail, myself included, that that he might not only carry a perfect sinless record up Mount Calvary, offering himself as our spotless sin bearing substitute, but also that he might minister to us from the heavenly places as our sympathetic high priest. We we talk about this verse so often, and it's so glorious. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, the author of Hebrews, naming his identity. Yes, he is the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession then. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Have you ever been tempted? This is for all of us, myself included. Have you ever been tempted to question God's word? Jesus knows what that's like. Have you ever been tempted to take matters into your own hands rather than trusting the Father? Jesus knows what that's like. Have you ever had the enemy whisper things that tempt you to question your identity as God's beloved? Jesus knows what that's like. Have you ever been tempted to bow before anything less than God? Jesus knows what that's like. Have you ever been tempted by a manipulation of God's very word in a moment of weakness? Jesus knows what that's like. Which is why the author of Hebrews would go on to say in the very next verse, Let us then with confidence draw near, run, run to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, we run to God's word, having been given his promises and truth when the devil would seek to destroy us. But more than that, we run to God's son, our great high priest, whoever lives and pleads for us as we sing often and meets us with all the the mercy and grace that we could possibly need. This is where the beauty of four gospel accounts comes to bear. 
For those who would ask, why four? Wouldn't one have been sufficient? And we see some of the beauty in the comparison where more than one come together in very similar ways. And then we see some of the beauty in the contrast at times. If you read Matthew's gospel account of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, Matthew tells us that when the devil left Jesus, angels came and were ministering to him. You have this sudden appearance of a multitude of heavenly hosts. How encouraging must that have been? Who wouldn't want that, right? A multitude of hosts coming out of a moment of temptation. Having gone a few rounds in the octagon with the greatest force of evil the world has ever known. And yet, and let your head spin in light of this truth, the author of Hebrews declares that we have something better. That yes, Jesus was ministered to by angels, as are we. But in addition, you and I are ministered to by Jesus Christ himself. The curtain's been torn. That that we have access to God in our moments of greatest need, moments of greatest doubt, moments of greatest temptation. That yes, we have access to the word of God and praise be to God for that. But more than that, we have access to the son of God and that's amazing grace. And so the invitation this morning is incredibly simple. We've run to the word. We've done that for the last 20, 30 minutes. I don't know what it's been. I've lost track. But now we're invited to run to the son, to run to the throne of grace and mercy, to cry out to him and to say whatever it is that we need to say that we identify with in light of this moment in the wilderness for Jesus. Perhaps it's, I've been tempted to question God's word. Thank you, Jesus, that you know what that's like. Would you give me mercy and grace for help in that? I've been tempted recently to take matters into my own hands rather than trusting the Father. Jesus, you know what that's like. Would you give me mercy and grace to help with that? I've had the enemy whispering things that tempt me to question my identity as God's beloved. Jesus, you know what that's like. Would you give me mercy and grace to help with that? I've been tempted to bow before things less than God. Jesus, you know what that's like. Would you help me? Would you give me mercy and grace to help with that? I've been tempted by a manipulation of God's very word in a moment of weakness recently. Jesus, you know what that's like. Would you give me mercy and grace to help with that? Jesus loves to dispense mercy and grace when we cry out like that. So I invite us to do that. I invite us to sing to our great high priest, our great priest king, Jesus Christ, who has torn the curtain into the heavenly places. He is seated at the right hand of the almighty as we speak. He's alive. Get to sing to the living son of God in these moments to come. We get the joy the blessing, the benefit, the means of grace of the Lord's Supper, to partake of that together as well. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one during these last couple of songs. We, we don't receive of those elements at the same time together with a herd mentality, that there's nothing wrong with that. We give space for you to partake of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and the cup representing his shed blood when you're ready to do so over the course of these last couple of songs just encourage you as you prepare to do so to sit with the wonder of 
Jesus' perfect obedience in one of the greatest moments of temptation the world has ever known to know that he took that to the cross on your behalf, that he might die as your sinless substitute, that his shed blood might matter for you, his broken body might matter for you, that you might be ushered in, that you might be made a son, that you might be made a daughter, that you might be able to cry out in the way that we've just described. You might be able to approach the throne and not only approach it, but the author of Hebrews says confidently. 